Father, thank you that we could, uh, we could hear what's going on. We can pray to you. We can sing songs to you. And now we can listen to what you have to say to us from your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's, it's not just me getting up here and speaking this morning, but that because you have given us your written and authoritative word, we can know what it is that you think, what it is that you act, how you act, what you ask, and, and what you want. Uh, so, Lord, we place ourselves under the authority of your word. We say that you are our Lord. We are not Lord of our own lives, but you are Lord of our lives. And so we, we ask you to speak to us through your word, help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us, know how to respond, and have the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are looking at Genesis chapter 38 today, conveniently located on page 38 in the Bible. So if you want a pure pew Bible, pull it out, open it up and uh, get to Genesis 38, we are going to be looking at what is basically a pause in the story of Joseph. You remember last week we started into the story of Joseph. We talked about how uh, Joseph and his, his brothers, he's got 11 brothers, he's got at least one sister at this point. His, his dad, the extended family, they're all living in what is southern Israel, southern land of Canaan in Hebron. But we're going to find that over the next few chapters, Joseph and all of his family eventually find themselves in Egypt. And it's not for another 400 years after that, that the nation, the family of Israel, comes out of Egypt. The Joseph story tells us how God sends his people into what would be a hostile territory to to incubate them to grow them. Have any of you ever hatched chicks at home or at school? Anybody? A few of you have hatched chicks? All right, so you know you need an incubator, keep the eggs warm, eventually the uh, the chicks come out, and they're not so cute when they come out, but they eventually fluff up and they get a lot cuter. The nation of Israel will be in the incubator of Egypt for 400 years. They'll go in first as one guy, Joseph, then the rest of the family, totaling 70 people, And they will come out somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million people 400 years later. That is the story that got started last week. You remember that that Joseph was sent to find his brothers who were tending the flock to bring a report back to dad, let them know how things were going. But when he got up to the area of Shechem where they were supposed to be, They weren't there. He continued on to Dothan, found him there, and to his surprise, they were not happy to see him. They stripped him of his royal robe. They threw him in a pit. They planned to kill him, but Judah, who will play the leading role in today's story, convinced his brothers that he is of no value to them if he's dead, but they could sell him as a slave and make a little bit of spending money. So that's what they do. Some Ishmaelite, Midianite traders are coming by. Joseph is sold to them as a slave, and he is carried down to Egypt. He's sold to Potiphar, and next week we pick up that story where it left off. But in the providence, the plan of God, 38 is inserted in the middle of that story to give us a little glimpse into what is happening back with the main family as Joseph is on his way or in Egypt. It's not a good story. It's pretty ugly. But it will point us to the grace of God. 
So if we're looking at chapter 38, I'm sorry, I told you it was on page 38. That's not true. My notes say page 32. Chapter 38 of Genesis, we read this little pause, this little extra story here. It starts this way. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. Now, whenever you see the words went down or went up, when talking about a geographic location in the, in the Bible, it's actually talking about an elevation change. So if you can picture the, the map, let's, let's go to our, our main map that we've been working at. You can't see it so much here, but Hebron, and then there's like a, a line all the way up to Shechem, is like the central ridge in the middle of the land of Canaan. If we go to the next image, we'll see if we zoom in on where Hebron is, you can tell by the shading that you've got Watershed to the left, watershed to the right, and Hebron is up on the top. If you were to look at it as a cross-section, the the land of Canaan would, would come up in the middle. Now, when it says that Judah went down from his brothers, it means he actually went down. He's, he's going to head to the northwest, which is downhill. Let's go to the next image here. He's going to go to the the region of Adullam. He's going to meet a guy there, an Adullamite, somebody from that area, meaning either he lived in that town or he lived in the surrounding region, which was actually filled with caves. If you're familiar with the story later in the Bible where King David is hiding from King Saul in a cave, it's in one of those caves right there in that area. But the main part of what's going to happen today is just a couple miles further in Kazib. All right. Hurrah, we're told, is an Adulamite. He's a buddy of Judah. Now, this is where the story already starts going south. All right? So, as a Canaanite, that means that he's one of the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan, and the people of the family of Israel, and Judah is the fourth-born son the family of Israel, that family is supposed to remain separate from the Canaanites. God's chosen people are supposed to remain separate It's the idea of being holy, different from the people around him. And right away, first verse in this story, we see that Judah has a buddy who's a Canaanite. Now, this particular buddy is going to be there for the ugliest moments of Judah's life. And it's possible that he's not only staying silent and allowing Judah to go off into this ridiculous sin that we're going to see, but he may actually be encouraging it. Some of you in this room today may have some friends like that. Maybe you yourself have already been born again as a child of God. But you have certain friends that when you get with them, you find yourself acting more like a child of the devil than the child of God. There's just something about, maybe it's because of the way that the friendship used to be before Jesus saved you, that you get pulled back in there. There's just this, this gravitational pull into that. Then you can identify with Judah today as he gets pulled in. Verse 2, so they've gone down to that region. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, that is the, uh, the man, the, the father of the, the daughter is Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ire. Now it looks like Ur, but it's pronounced like the front half of Ireland. His name is Ire. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now, I know it looks like Shelah, poor guy, but it's Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. 
All right, so our story is progressing quickly. Judah finds a woman. We're told that she is a Canaanite woman. Not only does he marry her, as is implied here, which he's not to do. He's not to marry someone outside of the chosen family there. He's not to mix those ethnicities together. But the language here is stark. He sees a woman. He wants the woman. He claims the woman. He impregnates the woman. He's treating her as a piece of property to be claimed. The starkness of the language is meant to communicate to us that this is wrong. That this is not the way that God has intended marriage to be. But Judah doesn't so much care. He is driven by his lust. He's driven by his passion. He's driven by his desire. He doesn't care what God has said. He doesn't care that he has wandered away from the family, that he is now starting a new family with a forbidden people. He just wants what he wants. And he's going to take it. Verse 6. Judah took a wife for Ire, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ire, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. How about that? Now, Tamar is a Canaanite too. So Judah's family at this point is actually more Canaanite than it is Israelite. What was so wicked about Ire? God doesn't tell us. He just tells us that he killed him. Verse 8. Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And we think, what in the world is this about? All right. So this is, this is what's referred to as literate marriage. Now, this would be written into the Word of God years later by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. But the idea, the practice of it was actually common throughout the Middle East for what we can figure is all of history. So if a brother... Who a married brother dies without having conceived any children through his wife, then the surviving brother is to perform the duty of a husband with the surviving wife in order to bring forth an heir who would belong to the line, the lineage, the name, the inheritance of the first brother. Right? So Onan is supposed to take Tamar as a wife any child that is conceived through Tamar would then be considered the son of Ayer, not the son of Onan. As weird as that is, perhaps you can understand the, just the physical reality of that. If Ayer is the firstborn, he should get the primary inheritance. But he's dead, which means it would go to Onan instead. But if Onan fathers a child, and the child is considered Ayer's child, then all of that inheritance, and the honor, and the name, and the lineage, and the legality, all of that passes through the line of the dead brother. And Onan does not want to cooperate with that. Owen thinks that's funny. Uh, as those of you who know Owen, um, he goes in these cycles and they tend to be either hormonal or something, but he can go from a few days of just screaming all the time to what has been the last few days where he's giggling all the time. So when he giggles in the middle of the, uh, the sermon, it's not actually because of anything I'm saying. He just did that all, no- all night last night too, in the middle of the night. So thanks, Owen. 
All right, so let's, let's look at where this gets written in the law of God. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's the law written hundreds of years later, but it is obviously already in play here because of what we see in these next few verses. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, I've never really read much of the Bible, but as we've been going through Genesis, there's a lot of stuff in there that's not exactly family-friendly material, right? That is true, and that is on purpose. This is not just an historical account. This is the Word of God for us, and He's communicating things to us, and He doesn't pull the punches that sometimes we wish He might. Now, as surprising as this direct judgment is, like here's another son who is dead, we at least know why this time, but we're wondering, why is it really that important? Why, why would the idea of continuing the family line be so important that this would be worthy of death? Surely this does not rise to what we would consider worthy of the death penalty today. Remember that Judah is the one who convinced his brothers to sell Joseph and then lie to dad so that dad thinks Joseph is dead. And now Judah actually has two dead sons. Verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So she's told to wait. Shelah is not old enough yet. As we're going to see, Judah really has no intention at all of marrying Shelah to Tamar. Perhaps he sees her as cursed. Maybe she is the reason that two of his three sons are dead. But his intention here is to protect his son. What is Tamar to do at this point? Culturally, there is great shame that she is now a widow twice. Judah is not the only one that thinks maybe there's something cursed about her. There's even greater shame that she has not been able to have any children culturally. That is such a a shame for her. What is she to do? Is she to just remain a widow, lonely, her whole life? Well, she takes matters into her own hands, and the way she does this is rather shocking to us. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Herah the Adulamite. So we got the friend again. Judah's wife has died. Tamar knows that Judah's wife has died. Uh, He's got a time of mourning where he basically stays at home and mourns all day long. When he's done with that, Tamar knows that this man of low character is going to be looking for some action. And she's going to take advantage of his lust. Verse 13. 
When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Again, the Bible is so matter-of-fact here. What is a scandalous, ugly situation is simply described for us as reality. Judah doesn't think twice. He sees someone who he thinks is a prostitute. He wants to hire the prostitute. He makes the, the deal, transacts the business. This is, this is so far from what God designed sexuality to be. Designed to be a gift for us in the context of marriage. But we as humans, we have corrupted it. We have messed it up. We have removed it from the context. We have destroyed it in so many ways. And this is one example of that. Now, Judah will pay this mysterious prostitute with the sum of a young goat. I guess that's the going price. He doesn't have a young goat with him. So he must give her some kind of an IOU. And this is where the story takes an intriguing turn. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on her garments of her widowhood. This signet could have been a ring or it could have been a cylinder made of bone or clay or metal or even wood. And if it was the the cylinder, he would have worn it around his neck with a special cord that would also be uh, unique to him. The signet is only him. The cord is unique to him. Then his staff would probably have basically a family crest on it, something that identifies it as his. And so what he's doing here is the ancient equivalent of handing her his driver's license, his social security card, and his passport as an IOU. We might look at this and rightfully say, Judah is a fool. Right? But he's so driven by his lust, he's so driven by that, that carnal, fleshly desire that he wants what he wants, and he wants it now, and so he's going to give his driver's license, social security, and passport to this woman whom he thinks is a complete stranger and hope that everything goes well. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? They said, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. So the buddy, the Canaanite buddy, is sent to make the payment, maybe to save face for Judah, to lower the risk of him being exposed for his sin. But they're surprised. This, this woman, whom they expected to be a local, turns out to not be a local. But notice, the question is, where is the cult prostitute? And with that label, we see that, that Judah's sin is actually more dastardly than we thought. He's not simply driven by carnal desires. He's not simply wanting the pleasure that he can get by hiring the prostitute. 
This woman is referred to as assumed to be by them as a cult prostitute. So the, the Canaanites were basic pagans in their worship. They worshipped all kinds of false gods and goddesses. And their, their worship was tied in many ways to sexuality, to fertility. And so you would have these cult prostitutes who would engage in intercourse with men, not just for the profit of it, not just for the man's pleasure, but because it was tied as an act of worship, hoping that it would placate, please a god or a goddess who would then provide the man with good crops, good herds, fertility in his family. Over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this play out again and again, where even the people of Israel are desperate for wealth, are desperate for growing families, are desperate for good crops, and they engage in sexually tainted, false religious practices in order to try to get wealthy, to get success. Judah and his buddy assume that Tamar, who they don't know is Tamar, is a cult prostitute. And so we have here one of the sons of Israel, one of the sons of the promised family, who has left his family settlement, has gone to Canaanite territory, has married a Canaanite wife who's now dead, has engaged with a prostitute whom he assumes is actually a cult prostitute and is therefore engaging in an act of worship to the pagan Canaanite gods. How far has Judah fallen from where God has called him to be? Judah is a mess. Let me let you in on a little secret. As strange as it seems to us, this idea of a cult prostitute. The reality is, sex is inherently religious. We, in our current culture, we tend to think of ourselves as basically physical bodies. All right? So the world would tell you that you're evolved from an ape, and basically you're, you're a monkey that has an increased ability to reason and plan ahead and make complicated tools. And that as a primarily physical being... If you're an adult and you've got a consenting adult, you should be able to do whatever you want with whomever you want, and there shouldn't really be any particular consequences. As technology has advanced and, and we now have what we wrongfully refer to as safe sex or different forms of contraceptive or abortion, we've removed the, the various uh, natural consequences of sexuality outside of God's plan. And so we can live on in this, this fool's dream thinking that if I'm an adult and I've got a consenting adult and it feels good and there's nobody getting hurt, then everything's okay. But according to the Bible, we are not just physical beings. We are primarily spiritual beings inhabiting bodies. Now, our bodies are not, they're not uh, discardable. They're not they're not worthless. We are linked to our bodies. So it's not like we're just spirits temporarily trapped in a body and the body's bad and the spirit's all good. No, that's, a, that's an old heresy of Gnosticism. But God in his wisdom has created us as spiritual body or as spiritual beings that live in physical bodies and our bodies and our spirits are linked with each other. What we do in our spirit affects our body. What we do in our body affects our spirit and so, everything that we do is inherently spiritual. 
even if you've, even if you've not heard this said before, you may know this already in your soul. Because you have, you've maybe experienced things, you've done things that are outside of God's plan, even just in the area of sexuality, and you know the, the pain, the hole, the hurt, the regret, the guilt. You, you know that. That guilt, that regret, that pain, that shame, that is actually a gift to you, pointing you to the greater reality that you are not just a body, you are a spirit in a body, and you are loved by God, and God's plan is greater than you could ever imagine. We used to know this as a society. Maybe, maybe you've been to a, an old, a wedding with an old-fashioned vow in it. Maybe you've heard this one. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. With my body I thee worship. That used to be the standard in wedding vows. Now we would look at that and we say, this sounds a little bit like idolatry. Like God is the only one we're supposed to be worshiping. What's going on here? But as language has changed over the years, the way that this was heard by previous generations is not the way that we hear it this generation. This idea of worship, the English word worship, is worth-ship. And so this is a future spouse declaring to the other future spouse how great his or her worth is is and with his body speaking sexually here he or she will worship will ascribe worth to the other person above all other people in the world that's the idea that's being communicated here and yet it uses this religious language because sexuality just like all of our physical world is actually spiritual let's go back to our story 22 so he, that is the Adulamite, returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. So they call off the hunt. Judah is, at this point, hoping that this will never be brought out into the open again. Yes, she has his driver's license, social security, and passport, but... Maybe she's just going to disappear and nobody will ever find out what's going on. The truth is, our sins never stay hidden. This is true for all of us. This is actually true for all of our sins. And as the story will play out, we'll see that this sin does not stay hidden. Sometimes, though, our sins can be hidden through our whole lives and then actually come out after we're dead. One of the guys that I have most respected for his ministry, for his authoring of books, for the way that he has helped so many people over the years is a guy named Ravi Zacharias. He has written amazing books. He has taught so many people how to defend the Christian faith. And he died last year. And in the last few months, it has become clear that for years he was living a double life, that he was hiding just this whole line of sexual misconduct. His, his reputation is completely trashed. 
His witness for the gospel is destroyed. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world right now who are saying, God used Ravi to bring me to faith, and he was a fake. Is my faith fake? Did I trust in a false gospel because I heard it from this man? What a sad story. And yet it is so common. But even if you make it to the end of life and you're not found out and exposed, and even if you're not exposed after you're dead, eventually everybody will be exposed. Now that is bad news. There's good news coming, so just wait. But the reality is at the end of time there will be a judgment and everything will be exposed. Every deed, every thought, Every inclination of the heart that you yourself don't even recognize is known by an infinitely knowledgeable God who is also an infinitely powerful judge. That is the scary truth, the reality of our sin. More on that later. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. The self-righteousness, the judgment in Judah. How dare my daughter-in-law behave this way? She is not worthy to be part of my family, to be under my roof, to be provided for by me. She is not worthy of life. Bring her out and burn her publicly. Can you hear the soundtrack getting more intense at this point in the story? We know the truth. We know where that spark of life in her came from. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, so she can't actually present her case in person. She's going to send a messenger. By the man whom whom these... By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, if she could have stood before her father-in-law, you can imagine the tone of her voice, the look on her face, and the look on Judah's face as those three unique identifiers are laid in front of him with the message, the man to whom these belong is the father of the child that you are about to burn inside of his mother. Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now, Judah has a track record of awful sin. Selling his brother, lying to his dad, um, leaving the family in order to be part of the pagan culture, and you know, having a family that is mostly pagan, not Israelite, engaging with this prostitute is actually his daughter-in-law. There's this whole list of sin in Judah's life, but this right here is the beginning of the turning of his life. Judah will will actually become a man of greater character over these next few chapters. And I think this is the turning point for him. Now notice, he doesn't confess his sexual sin. 
He doesn't confess really anything other than to say that she is more righteous than me because I did not give my son to her in marriage. He goes back to that liberate marriage idea. Kind of ignores all the other stuff and says, this was the main thing. She is more righteous than me. He confesses that. But he doesn't confess those other things, which you and I would probably consider to be the greater sins. But notice what he does. He begins to repent. He begins to turn. All right, So he's publicly, publicly confessed part of it, and he's turning from the other part of it. He does not know her again. That means he does not engage in intercourse with her again. He now knows the truth. He's going to care for her as a daughter-in-law, and he's not going to use her as he did previously. That repentance is the beginning, turning of his life. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Just strange part of the story there, really, when we think about that. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. Get out of my way, dude, I'm going first. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach or split or distinction. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah, which means dawning or brightness. So once again, this family sees the mixing up of the, 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 the bloodline, of the, of the family birth order. Over and over again, four generations now, we have not the firstborn son being the star of the show, but another one. The second born for three of those generations, Joseph being the eleventh uh, born for one of those generations. But this is common in this story of Israel. Everybody knew the firstborn was the major one. But now we've got four generations in a row where this is not the case. As interesting as that is, and the whole idea of tying a red thread around the arm and the arm going back in and the other baby coming out and all that, as interesting as that is, we have to wonder, first of all, why is this chapter in here? And why are these details about this birth order in here? Why do we even care who these guys are, what their names are? Judah is not the first born in his family. These are sons of the third born in Judah's family. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because God is not only setting up the story for the rest of Genesis or the rest of the Old Testament where we find out how the people of God got into Egypt, grew into millions, and then were led out of Egypt 400 years later, but God is setting up the primary story of history That this story of the one child sticking his arm out and pulling it back in and then the other child coming out is actually pointing us to Christmas. If we skip ahead from the first book in the the Old Testament to the first book in the New Testament, to Matthew, we read this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez 
the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the beginning of the genealogy that we find in Matthew. And what we've just been told is this what should be rejected line of Judah becomes the royal line of the house of Israel. That King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, comes from the line of Judah through Perez. But Matthew doesn't stop there. And if we skip down, we get to the end of his genealogy and it says this, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, notice the same names in the same order as thousands of years before then, Jacob to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So this messed up, ugly guy named Judah ends up being the earthly ancestor of Jesus Christ through Joseph, husband of Mary. God knows this. He knows this when he chooses Abraham, chooses Isaac, chooses Jacob, names him Israel, knows and chooses Judah. When Judah's running off and doing his thing in Canaanite land, God knows all of this, that eventually not only will Judah's line be the royal line of the family, But the king of kings will come through this line 2,000 years later. This ugly story, this failed fatherhood, this prostitution, this incest, this is all pointing us to Christmas when Jesus is born. If you've wondered, how could God possibly forgive you? All, you, you've got this list in your mind of the worst things that you've done and thought, and you don't even know some of them. They're just buried inside of you. And you, you think, there's no way, if God really knows, there's no way He could forgive me. I pray that this story of Judah would be an encouragement to you. Judah is, in fact, a, a picture of what it means to be forgiven by grace through faith, not by our own works. Why do we even need to be forgiven, though? Why can't God just cancel all out, welcome us all into heaven and say, you guys made a mess of things, but I love you, everything's good, come on, let's have a party. Remember that idea that we talked about earlier, that our sins eventually always come out, that even if they don't come out in our lives or right after we die, they will eventually come out? If we skip from that first book of the Bible to the first book of the New Testament to the last book of the New Testament, we see in Revelation a glimpse of what is to come. There are various judgments in the Bible, various judgments in the book of Revelation. One of them is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Here's what is said. Verse 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. If you have someone sitting on a throne and the earth and sky are afraid and run away, this is a serious presence. No place was found for them. 
I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This should terrify us. If this really is the Word of God, if this is John being given a glimpse into the future, writing it down for us, this is the most terrifying moment in human history. Everyone stands before God who is sitting on the white throne, and the books are opened and everything is there, and we're thinking, no, this is very inefficient. How long would it take for them to go through all of this stuff? It doesn't matter. How God does it doesn't matter. The fact is, it's all there. It's all recorded. We are all exposed. But in this passage, there's also not just the threat of exposure, but the the promise, the hope of covering. Even in our story in Genesis, exposure and covering played a role there. Now, it's, it's tempting to go back and say, look, uh, she put the veil on, she stood by the side of the road, obviously we shouldn't be wearing masks, right? Everything bad happened because she was wearing a veil. But that veil is a covering. She takes that off later, she puts on her widow, widow's garments, she goes back home, she covers herself. And yet, the exposure of the story, the spiritual exposure can't be covered by just a veil or widow's garments. Your sin, my sin, it cannot be unexposed by changing our clothes, by hiding our past, changing our passwords, clearing our history. We can't prevent ourselves from being exposed. And yet in this most terrifying passage, we have this, this last verse. Anyone's name was not writ, found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so we must ask, how do I get my name in the book of life? Right? Sure, we're all going to be exposed, but, but some people then are thrown in judgment into the lake of fire, and others are not. Those who are, whose names are written in the book of life, they are not thrown into the lake of fire. So if we're all going to be exposed, I can't avoid that then how do I at least avoid the judgment, the the second death, the lake of fire? And the answer to that is probably the most important, well, I'm certain it is, the most important thing that you need to deal with in this life. John is telling us the fundamental reality of where every human being is headed. And then he gives the hint of the hope. There's such a thing as a book of life. And your name can be written in it. How does that happen? It happens through repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn, to turn your life away from being your own self-ruled thing where you pretend that you're God and you call the shots, you make the rules. Turn away from that and place yourself under the lordship of Jesus who is the rightful king 
of your life. You, you, conf- yeah, you confess your sins, but, but even more than that, you, you change, you turn. Like Judah started to turn as he begins his repentance. You turn from that. And you place all of your faith in Christ alone. This is why I consider the story of Judah so valuable. Because at the end of time, I'm going to get to meet Judah. And it's not because Judah got his life cleaned up. It's not because he eventually got himself to be a good enough guy that he could get into heaven. No, Judah is the poster child for you can never save yourself. You are a hopeless mess. It is only the grace of God through faith that can save you. And the the key verse in the New Testament that points us to that is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you haven't yet memorized this, I encourage you to. It's found on page 976. For by grace, by grace, just God's gracious gift to you, you have been saved through faith. That is trusting in Christ. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's how you get your life reconciled. That's how you get your name written in the book of life and escape the judgment of the second death. Judah knew nothing of that good news. He just tried to hide. He hoped that his shame wouldn't catch up to him. But through the witness of the rest of the Bible, we know the rest of the story. And you today have heard the truth that you need not suffer the judgment of the second death. That you can turn from your self-ruled life. You can place all of your faith in Christ alone. And you can be saved even today. To keep this in the realm of family, which is what 38 is really all about, we can read this in John 1. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, put their trust in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're here today and you are already a child of God, then I pray that this story of Judah would be an encouragement to you, that you would look back on it with marvel, you would say, I... I'm I'm Judah, and yet God has loved me and saved me. I am a new creation in Christ, even though I don't deserve it. I was Judah, but now I'm a son of God. If you're here today and you're yet outside the family of God, then hear the good news. You do not need to remain outside the family of God. You You do not need to fear your exposure. You can be covered by Jesus. His death on the cross took all of the punishment that you and I deserve so that we can receive mercy instead of judgment. You can be born again even today. We're going to take communion in just a couple minutes. We'll have a time of silent reflection, and I encourage you to use that time of reflection to come to God in confession and repentance, to search your heart, Lord, what are the things that I have been holding on to, hoping that will, they'll never be exposed? And I've even tried to hide them from you. What are those things that in stubborn rebellion I have turned my back on you and tried to live as my own Lord? Ask Him.
He'll show you. You can come to him in, in repentance and faith again. If you're, if you're a member of the family of God, then please partake in communion this morning knowing that you don't deserve it. It is only by grace through faith that you can be a part of the family of God and share in communion. That we can escape that great white throne judgment. As you spend those minutes reflecting, I pray that you would not just be stuck in that past, but that you would see the beauty of the present and of the future, that if you are in Christ, your sins, every one of them, are forgiven. Let's pray.